0: You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, episode 125.
1: The Canadian immigration process can be complex and frustrating. With the Canadian Immigration Department making it virtually impossible to speak to an officer, there are few places to turn to for trusted information. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest on immigration law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthe, as he is joined by industry leaders across Canada, sharing insight to help
0: you along your way. Well, hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I am indeed Mark Holthy, Canadian Immigration Lawyer and the host of the podcast. Today is a solo episode. My fearless compadre Alicia Bachman Bahari is away, and so I am tackling this topic, which is a very, very unique topic in the world of the Canada-U.S.-Mexico agreement. I'm going to do it on my own and hopefully, uh, well, it actually brings back um, memories of the previous many, many episodes where I was solo. And I'm so grateful to have Alicia here. She really brings in um, a different perspective. Uh, She is much more detail-oriented than I am. I'm a dreamer and she's a realist and it's a perfect fit For this podcast. But today, episode 125 will be all me. So we'll excuse her and she'll be back to join us in 126. Well, today we're going to unpack the intricacies of the KUSMA trader and investor work permits. These permits fall under the general category of what I call Canada immigration's best kept secrets. Now, before we delve into the depths of today's topic, let's quickly summarize the basic elements just to kind of get you set up. I'm not going to go into the specific details. You guys can go to the IRCC website, Google Canada-US-Mexico agreement, program delivery instructions, traders and investors, and it will pull up the program delivery instructions for you and you can read through them. But let me give you a little bit of a general overview. And the key to what we're trying to accomplish today is to give you practical examples of how you can use this, because there are obviously a lot of options there. And uh, yes, today I'm going to give you another tool for your toolbox, and I'll get into a little story about that a little bit later. But essentially, the trader work permit is designed for individuals who engage in substantial trade between the US, basically in Canada, or Mexico and Canada. To qualify, applicants must have American-Mexican citizenship, work for an enterprise of the same nationality, and their trade activities must be primarily directed to Canada, comprising, and this is the key, at least 50% of the company's international trade. Additionally, the role in Canada should be of a supervisor... Uh, you know, supervisory, executive, or involve essential skills, essentially. So it's similar to the intercompany transfer. um, But I would argue that the essential skills folks, maybe it's not quite as rocket science-y as uh, the specialized knowledge in the context of an intercompany transfer. But we'll talk about that a little bit later too. Okay, moving on to the investor work permit. This category is for those making, you guessed it, a significant and active investment in a Canadian enterprise. The investor, who must also be an American or Mexican citizen, should be investing in a venture that promises more than just uh, personal living. In other words, investing in something that's only going to generate income for them. It should generate employment and contribute economically to Canada. So there needs to be more spinoff than just hanging out a shingle that basically only provides income sufficient to employ yourself. The invested funds must be substantial, which means they should be proportionate to the nature and scale of the business. We'll cover this a little bit later as well. So with these summaries in mind, let's explore the nuanced criteria, the application processes, and strategic considerations that come into play with these unique work permits. Now, let's start off with some full disclosure here. If you were to try to find statistics on how many of these work permits are issued every year, you'd have to dig pretty hard because there is not a lot of these that are being approved or even applied for, I think probably because many people are just unaware of how they might fit. And those that are usually have alternatives that work better. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But I want to um, you know, fully disclose that I don't do many of these and very few people do. But what I have learned has come from a combination of my limited exposure, coupled with the things I've learned from the amazing members of our immigration bar here in Canada, those individuals that freely share their experience, insight, and knowledge. And I am so, so grateful for them. Wow, I think back to, boy, the countless seminars, conferences, webinars, and workshops you know on immigration that I've attended over the past 20 years, and I've learned so much from all of you out there you know, my fellow colleagues' successes and failures that they're so willing to share, because, wow, like when you get the opportunity to benefit from someone else's experience, it can shave off years of having to learn it the hard way yourself. So I'm very, very grateful for them. And, and uh, you know, to a large extent, that's why I created this podcast in the first place, was to be able to pay it forward. So... For this episode, in particular, I want to extend a special shout out to two outstanding business immigration lawyers, David Garson and Joel Guberman, who shared a ton of insight on these two very underutilized work permits in a fantastic little webinar put on by the Canadian Bar Association. Oh, it was back I think in April of 2021, during the relative you know rise and fall of the pandemic. Um, and the webinar was chaired by Robin Seligman, so she gets a shout out as well. so thanks you guys. Uh, some of the scenarios and insights shared in this episode come from that webinar. So thanks so much, David, Joel, and Robin. Okay, let's talk about the Investor Work Permit first. So here, the crux is the investment itself. The funds must genuinely be at risk in a Canadian enterprise. You can't just plan to invest. You absolutely have to invest And it has to be up front before applying for the visa. So essentially, you got to have skin in the game. So what qualifies as a substantial investment? Well, it's not specified in dollar amounts. That's the first thing to, to really remember. It's about what's necessary to establish the business in Canada. So if you are, and I'll get into these examples a little bit later, if you're looking to come in and establish a small little mom and pop shop of some form, you know, the, the substantial investment, if, if the overall, well, let's take a restaurant, for example, if I was to acquire a restaurant and invest $100,000 in it, and maybe the restaurant was worth one hundred and fifty. well, you could argue that that's substantial. But if I was to come in and acquire a franchise with multiple restaurants in it that valued in the millions of dollars, then investing 100000 to secure the financing to then acquire those, um, that franchise may not be substantial. So you get the idea. It's kind of a sliding scale. And like I said, we'll talk about this a little bit later. The investment can't be marginal. So it can't, as we indicated before, simply sustain the foreign worker's income. It, that, that's not enough. It should be significant enough to employ other local employees too. So keep that in mind with the investor. Okay. Once again, the nationality of the company and the workers, that's key both as well, must be either Mexican or American. The company must be US owned and the individuals transferring must be US citizens or Mexican. And notably for those with permanent residence in Canada or green card holders in the US, this won't work for them. So if it's a Indian national who's in the US on a green card status and wants to go through this program, obviously it doesn't work as do none of the other work permits um, within KUSMA because it's an agreement for Canada, US and Mexican citizens. But if your investor already is a permanent resident of Canada, then this also won't work for them as well, which obviously it won't work um, you know, for them personally because they don't need a work permit. They're already a permanent resident. But it also undermines the ability of uh, yeah individuals who um, want to come in through other yeah, through to bringing, bringing in other, uh, other folks along the line. So keep that in mind. Now, in the case of global companies, if the headquarters are in the, are in the US, but the ownership isn't American, let's say it's Dutch citizens who own it, that also won't fit the bill for the investor work permit. Okay, to give you an example of how the investor work permit may fit where others don't, well, Consider that this work permit is suitable, like we talked about, for executives, managers, or those with essential skills. Now, normally you'd think, hey, ICT, but what if the person hasn't yet been with the company for a year? Okay, well, then I can probably think C20, right? Well, what if there's no reciprocity with Canadians working abroad for the company? Well, ICT and C20 could be ruled out at that stage. However, the treaty investor may be the perfect fit in this situation, Another significant advantage of the investor work permit is its objectivity. So it's it's easier to demonstrate the requirements are met, um, and there's far less discretionary decision-making by the officer, as would the case be, for example, a C-10 significant benefit work permit, which also could be considered. So the rules and requirements, if you've met them and you can demonstrate them, um, then an officer really has only one choice, and that's to approve, whereas C-10, huh? You know, there's not a lot of uh, explanation as to what the requirements are for a significant benefit and demonstrating significant benefit. It can be very, very much so uh, a discretionary exercise on the part of the officer and uh, no two officers are created equal. That's for sure. All right, let's take a quick little break for a message from our sponsor. Journey Business Plans is the leading immigration business plan writing service provider in Canada. With more than 10 years of experience, Journey has grown to become a trusted partner for immigration consultants and lawyers. Journey focuses on preparing business plans for a number of immigration applications, including intercompany transfers, startup visas, significant benefits, self-employed, PNPs, and so much more. Their main competitive advantages are reliability, responsiveness, and overall customer service, and I can attest to that. For those of you who don't yet know about Journey, ask your colleagues about them. They're amazing. Or even better, try out their work. You can visit their website at www.joorney.ca and mention you listen to my podcast with the code Journey 10 That's H O L T H E J O O R N E Y number 10. And that'll provide you with a 10% discount on your very first business plan for new lawyers. We're so grateful to have Journey Business Plans as the title sponsor of this podcast. All right, let's shift gears to trader work permits now. Here, the company must be at least 50% owned by American or Mexican citizens, which is the case for the investor one as well and engage in substantial trade with Canada, meaning at least half of the company's international trade should be with Canada. This is what makes the trade substantial and obviously primarily directed to the country in which the work permit is sought. Now, ownership determination can be a little tricky, especially with publicly traded companies. Generally speaking, if it's traded exclusively on a U.S. stock exchange, it's a U.S. company. But if it's traded on multiple exchanges, then you need to pinpoint where the majority of the trade occurs. And the interesting part is, you know, if it's because it's public, it's possible that maybe the majority of the ownership, you know, may be actually owned outside of the U.S. But it's really hard to track that, you know, with constant, um, you know, share transfers within the context of a public company. So they run with the stock exchange, uh, the stock exchange kind of as a general rule. So what defines substantial trade? And we talked a little bit about this before. It could be a few high value transactions like, you know, I'm going to invest two, three, four, five million dollars a couple times over a certain period of time. Or it could be many smaller ones that cumulatively are significant. For example, maybe you've got a company in the US that has digital projects, uh, products like an app, for instance where in this situation, numerous low value purchases or transactions could also meet the substantial trade criteria. There's a a creative solution though for companies that don't currently trade substantially with Canada. So for example, we indicated, you know, previously that up to, well, really 50% or more needed to be with Canada. In those cases, it might be possible, and this is a, a good tip that came from that webinar I was talking about, um, for some companies who have a little bit of flexibility, maybe not the big, you know, the big John Deere tractors of the world, but maybe smaller companies um, may have the ability to set up a separate subsidiary whose, you know, purpose is maybe call it Canada Trading Company, um, you know, but the purpose is 100% of its trade is with Canada, thereby meeting substantial trade tasks. So you could consider that as an option for some of your companies if they are not currently trading 50% with Canada, so keep that in mind. And a bonus for traders, and this is something that I'm still trying to figure out how it works in the context of the employer portal, because uh, you know it's really, really regimented with the portal and the instructions on how to file. Really, do not take into consideration this work permit. I don't think they all they, they do at all. Because a bonus for traders is that you don't need a physical presence in Canada, so this could be ideal for service technicians who need to travel in and out of Canada, uh, you know, it also benefits consultants who could have multiple Canadian contracts and really just have one work permit. You know, unlike Kusma, where with the professional category, it requires a separate work permit for each Canadian client. And with the employer portal right now, it really kind of wedges you into having that Canadian entity apply for the actual um, registration uh, through the employer portal. And I'm still kind of working this through, but You have to understand just because those policies are in place, you know, from, you know, the, from the government perspective doesn't change the the law and the actual provisions within the treaties themselves. So if you're in that kind of a situation, you know, there may be opportunities for you to push back and still keep the foreign company or the U.S. company as uh, the the company registering um, the portal and you just make the case and say, look, the way you've got this set up doesn't account for the reality of the KUSMA trader work permit that doesn't require physical presence or investment in Canada. So keep that in mind and it's just food for thought for you to think about. So as we wrap up today's episode um, on this KUSMA trader and investor work permit, I want to leave you fellow immigration practitioners, practitioners with some practical tips and things to think about, um, you know, as you basically as you're, as you're thinking about whether or not this might work for you. Um, you know, these, these little tips that I share, they're going to jump around a little bit, but think of these as factors or, or different tools uh, that you could use in your business immigration toolbox. And, oh boy, it's, it's hard not to think of this, you know, in, in the world of trades. So uh, as an immigration lawyer, I, my skills and, and uh, abilities are very knowledge-based. I look at my, my dear brother, Darcy, and just to, put things in context. If the world went to hell in a handbasket and, uh, you know, obviously there's no use for an immigration lawyer when the world's falling apart and you need someone who actually has practical skills. Um, it kind of reminds me of a South Park episode that I watched recently. Anyways, um, I would go live with Darcy and his family because he is a, he's a, um, a certified auto mechanic, a welder an amazing fabricator. Man, that guy can build just about anything. He built me a fantastic chin-up bar that I've got in my garage right now, in addition to you name it, rebuilding all kinds of things. And he's an arborist on top of it. So that guy, if, I was to, if you were to go to his house and look at the toolbox that he has, well, it's not a toolbox. He's got like a garage full of every kind of tool you could imagine to do just about any kind of thing to build, fabricate, repair, you name it. Then if we were to go into Mark's garage, well, my garage is a little bit cleaner than Darcy's is. But if you were to go to the one corner, pull out the little tool, I don't even know what it is, kind of a bag, I guess I've got it in this heavy transport bag, my tools, and then a couple little socket sets. And and uh, what else do I got there? Maybe I've got a grinder. <laughs> I don't I don't even know, but it is well, the the disparity is massive. And so one of the things that helps Darcy to be so effective and you know as a handyman or whatever is the fact that he has the tools and he, he's aware of the tools that are out there and he knows how to use them. Well, for me, I keep telling my wife, the reason I don't do as much repairing around the house and I you know don't appear to be as handy is because I don't have the right tools right? And so you apply that to our world as immigration practitioners. And it always amazes me um, individuals who they learn one thing. Let's say they learn how to do intercompany transfers or maybe NAFTA professional work permits. And that's all that they do. And so when they get a client that comes to them, they do everything they can, including sometimes pushing the envelope to get people to fit within those Two work permits because they're the only ones that they know how to do, and then often they'll tell people, "Well, oh, sorry, it just doesn't fit." There's you know there's no options for you, when in reality there are a ton of tools out there, and so part of the reason Alicia and I are doing these uh, these ep- episodes, these business immigration series episodes, is to give you guys awareness of the tools that are out there, and how do you acquire the tools? Well listening to this podcast, learning about them. So when you hear the fact situation of a client and you realize it doesn't fit into the traditional inter, excuse me, intercompany transfer or NAFTA professional work permit, you know, then you have an ability to say, okay, well, what about this treaty? Oh, the person's a citizen of this country. Hey, there's these other avenues that are possible, you know, or, um, you know, in the case of these treaty trader and investor work permits, there may be a situation that fits just perfect for you. So, That's kind of what we're trying to accomplish here. And I think you guys probably get what I'm talking about. And, uh, you know, if you don't take the time to learn what all the other options are, you may very well be a crappy representative. (laughs) And uh, as far as I'm concerned, you know, if we're focusing on immigration and we're focusing on business immigration, then we bloody well should know all of the options that are available for our clients, you know, and we just can't be lazy. We have to put the effort in. So I want to thank, you know, all of those colleagues and and senior practitioners and really pillars of our immigration um, bar, you know, and I could start naming off so many of them that are constantly sharing their knowledge, giving. And, and a lot of you younger lawyers, up-and-comers who are taking the time to speak on panels and to, you know, write papers and share your knowledge and experience. So, you know, all of us, you know, I, I consider myself kind of a mid-level lawyer now, although you know, I've just about hit 20 years um, of of practice, which is hard to believe, you know, there's still so many others that have been practicing longer than me that know so much more. And, uh, you know, the goal is always just to pay it forward. Okay, that was a little bit of a drift into some different discussions. But uh, let's get back to some of these tips and things to kind of help you expand your toolbox when it comes to traders and, and investors. Okay, all right. Here's the first one. When considering substantial investment, think of it like I said as a sliding scale. It's not just about the amount. And as I indicated before, um, you know, for instance, a hundred thousand dollars might be substantial for a single restaurant, but not for a franchise with multiple restaurants valued in the millions of dollars. So sometimes it it's almost easier for a smaller enti- entity to develop, you know, this. Uh, the evidence necessary to prove substantial investment. But at the same time, it's not necessarily um, the dollar figure in and of itself. And so, you know, you take a graphic designer or someone like that who is coming in to, you know, establish their own business in Canada um, through an investment like this. Well, how much does it cost to set up a, you know, a little office? Like maybe you have a um I'm not even sure if I have this as one of the examples here sometimes I get a little bit more uh, drifting off here in my in my storytelling and I get off script but you know individuals that are coming to set up an office you know as a professional maybe um what does it take you know $20,000 $25,000 to to invest you you know you get a lease agreement you you pay the the the, the beginning you know and uh, a deposit you pay your first month's rent You get computers, equipment, you hire us awesome immigration lawyers to help you, you know, prepare the application. That's all part of the investment and, uh, you know, basically to get set up. So how much is that compared to a company that wants to, you know, set up a new subsidiary in Canada and they manufacture something, right? You can do the math. So keep that in, you know, in mind that that substantial investment just has to make sense for what a business of this particular type, you know, what it would actually cost to set up. Okay, I want to hit on something that probably many of you are asking. Well, everybody wants to become a permanent resident, and that's fair. Some people do. Many people maybe come to Canada and just want to expand their their operations, and they don't really want to become a permanent resident. And this really does give them the ability to come, and there's no caps on the actual um, extensions of these work permits. So you can continue to extend them uh, under the Trader and Investor Program, uh, but if someone does want to seek, you know, those arranged employment points under express entry, there's a little bit of a debate right now as to whether or not someone coming in, especially if you're self-employed, which is specifically prohibits claiming that Canadian work experience uh, for the purposes of the Canadian experience class because it's self-employed. But in other cases, you may be able to, if it's you've established a business, you've set up um, everything that you need to, you're employing Canadians and you establish yourself as a Ford employee. So you basically pay your taxes and uh, they're remitted at source and all indicia of of employment is there, then you may very well be eligible or or be able to to obtain those extra 200 points um, for the arranged offer of employment. So keep it in mind, you definitely have to be able to support it. And uh, yeah, there's been a lot of pushback from from IRCC. I'm not sure why they're so fixated on this with self-employed people and I'm not going to go into all the stories of past clients I've had that where we've had to fight with them on this. But they are softening. Like they just did it with the physicians and so notwithstanding their fee-for-service model, they now allow for those individuals to go through the Canadian experience class. So just make sure that if you do have an owner who owns, you know, the majority of the business, um and it's not just an employee, but someone who, who is, you know, a major shareholder that you really, truly put in place the steps to uh, ensure there's no doubt about them being an employee of that company as well. All right. Uh, next, a word of caution. Okay. So when you're actually, and this is more practical, when you're actually completing the forms, the IMM 5321 form for and treaty um, trader and investor uh, purposes It's a dual purpose form. So you need to stay vigilant. In other words, it's used for everything, like for both of the programs and the requirements and eligibility for each of these, like we talked about, traders versus investors are distinct and different. And so make sure when you're answering them, if you see a question that doesn't apply, then explain why you're not going to answer it or why it doesn't apply just so that an officer isn't confused. And these applications I never... Uh, I would never advise you to try these at a port of entry. I think for, maybe it's the investor, it says you could potentially file at a port of entry, but <clears throat> no, I'd never do it. Go through go through the online process so that it lands on a visa officer's desk. And uh, yeah, you never, you never want to take a run at these at a port of entry. The border service officers are just not equipped to deal with these types of uh, applications. But yeah, on the 5321 form, make sure that you watch for that. So, for example, uh, for treaty traders, there's no specific requirement um, to declare the value of trade within Canada. In other words, there isn't an obligation to explain an investment. Um, That's the investor work permit. And so, uh, you know, it's about the trade volume with Canada, which could be a service, And so don't get caught up, you know, when the questions are asked, even within the treaty trader section, they may ask these types of questions. And so be proactive and say, hey, these are all the things that are needed for the trader work permit. And uh, as far as investment, that's not this work permit. That's the other one. So this is why I've answered this way. So keep that in mind. And then also um, just remember Canada's stance on investment. So and really on, I shouldn't say just investment, on these types of um, these projects, these work permits that are, you know, that are facilitating someone coming in uh, where there's going to be economic spinoff. Well, the U.S. might be strict, you know, and they have a lot more detailed explanations on the U.S. side of this type of work permit. Um, you know, Canada welcomes solid applications. And I think we've always known that, you know, if you can demonstrate those economic benefits, like job creation within Canada, um, then you're going to be you're going to have a really good shot at this. So strong advocacy is the key here. And uh, like I said before, don't forget to explore that. Kusma is just one of our international treaties where we have investor and trader options. Excuse me, um, Canada has other treaties like CETA with the EU. And uh, in that one, you know, they don't have a tr- uh, an actual trader permit, but they do have an investor. And some people wonder, well, why would they not have a trader? Well, how many countries in the EU would be trading fifty percent or more with Canada? <laughs> so, <laughs> so you you know, companies in those in those EU countries are likely going to be trading with other EU countries. The, the bulk or substantial nature of their trade, not Canada. so that's why the trader probably doesn't fit. However, like I talked about before, if there's a really good opportunity in Canada for a company in the EU and they want to benefit from this, then maybe they consider you know establishing a subsidiary and uh, you know depending upon how you know the rules of CETA work, um, that might be a possibility. Okay, one of the challenging aspects of Kusma permits, um, at least with the investor and trader, is that the initial permits only issued for one year. And when you contrast that with the U.S.'s five-year term or up to five years, well, that one's way more conducive to business stability, right? So we need to advocate for you know for an extension of this initial time, and not just extensions, but but for a larger initial duration on that that first work permit. Now, there's no caps on these, and that's great. And we should, but we should push the envelope for the benefits of our clients. And if the facts are right and maybe a client is willing, you just might want to take a run at that one year limit and, and consider, a, consider a federal court application. But the reality is, few companies you know, may be willing to invest millions of dollars when they're only securing a one year work permit, even though it has the ability to be extended. And like I said, there's no caps on how many times. So, uh, but it does still create more uncertainty. So, keep that in mind. For those acquiring existing businesses, um, you know, business plans, things like that. And obviously, the title sponsor of our podcast is Journey Business Plans. And they're a great little company and are just fantastic for these types of situations. And they don't charge a ton of money either, especially when companies are investing large sums. So I always direct my clients back to, to journey. But, um, you know, when you think about uh, the case of acquiring a, an existing business, really, you, you've got your share purchase agreement, you've got the transfer of money. So, uh, you know, a, a business plan isn't really necessary. But in the context of a startup, absolutely. And that business plan, you know, it needs to clearly detail the the investment's trajectory within Canada. Like what what's going to happen with this investment and how is it, really going to make a difference. So business plans strategically created can really, really help with the process. Now, take advantage of the fact that these permits are not widely applied for. Some people say, well, there's a reason that they're not widely applied for, and that's fair. But this is where you have freedom to advocate. And you know if you're looking for a little bit more guidance on how to structure this just because there's not a lot out there i strongly consider uh, or direct you uh, to to considering a quick review of the us foreign affairs manual because they have a really really cool checklist a document checklist at the end of uh, of that particular manual for traders and investors that can really open up your eyes to some of the factors that you know, some of the pieces of evidence that you could use to support your work permit on the Canadian side. Even though it's not a strict template for Canada, it can really point you in the right direction when you're considering how best to support these work permit applications. All right. Um, I guess another thing that I'll probably end off with is that despite US and Mexico both being parties to this, you can't mix and match. So you can't have a US company that wants to bring in Mexican workers. And the same thing, a Mexican company that wants to bring in U.S. workers. So they need to line up U.S. and U.S., Mexican and Mexican. And for those, uh, and probably, let's see, I'm just about at the end here. For those that need to send in technicians, strongly consider this treaty trader permit. You know, as it's, it's almost like a golden ticket. And I'd, I probably shouldn't call it like that because we still have the employer portal challenges. But it's much more straightforward than an LMIA when a person maybe doesn't qualify through the after-sales service options. And, uh, you know, obviously, one of the drawbacks is you need to ensure that at least 50% of the company's trade is with Canada, which is not always possible. Um, But remember, having a dedicated US division that, you know, that's directed to providing services in Canada may be the route to go. All right. Okay, everybody. Well, thanks so much for joining me on today's episode. I hope this was helpful and informative. Remember that each of your applicants, each of your clients has their own story and it's your job to tell it well. And obviously, the better you can tell that story and the better you can structure your submissions, the greater the likelihood that an officer is actually going to get behind you. So thanks for joining me. As I said before, Alicia will be back with me in the next episode where we will continue our journey through the various international treaties that Canada has entered into And all of these can further expand your business immigration toolbox. So take care and all the best as we all navigate our way through this crazy world of Canadian immigration. Journey Business Plans is the leading immigration business plan writing service provider in Canada. With more than 10 years of experience, Journey has grown to become a trusted partner for immigration consultants and lawyers. Journey focuses on preparing business plans for a number of immigration applications, including intercompany transfers, startup visas, significant benefits, self-employed, PNPs, and so much more. Their main competitive advantages are reliability, responsiveness, and overall customer service. And I can attest to that. For those of you who don't yet know about Journey, ask your colleagues about them. They're amazing, or even better, try out their work. You can visit their website at www.joorney.ca and mention you listen to my podcast with the code Journey 10 That's H O L T H E J O O R N E Y number 10, and that'll provide you with a 10% discount on your very first business plan for new lawyers. We're so grateful to have Journey Business Plans as the title sponsor of this podcast.
1: Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast your trusted source for information on Canadian immigration law policy and practice. If you would like to book a legal consultation, please visit www.holtilaw.com. You can also find lots more helpful information on our Canadian Immigration Institute YouTube channel, where you can join Mark on one of his many Canadian Immigration Live Q&As. See you soon, and all the best as you navigate this crazy world we call Canadian Immigration.
2: the greatest country in the world. We want to share the richness of your soil. Yeah. in practice Here on the Canadian Immigration Park